Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, to mark the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Detroit Rebellion, Seattle Public Library hosted a discussion of the factors that create inequality, repression, and resistance. Scott Kurashige is a professor of American and Ethnic Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. He's the author of The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. Michael Hart is a professor of Literature and Romance Studies at Duke University. He is the author of Assembly. Kurashige and Hart spoke at the Seattle Public Library Central Library on August 16th. Nikita Oliver opened the event with her poem, Just Us. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. My name is K.O. Nikita Oliver, and uh, I was asked to do a specific poem for y'all, and before I do it, I just want to give you a little bit of background of uh, where it uh, birds out of, and especially as we think about um, a city like Detroit, and we think about places like Standing Rock and the Navajo Nation Reservation where water is um, hard to find. It's there, it's polluted. Um, and just remembering that water is not just a, a human right, but when we think about what Miniwachone means, which is, I'll say it one more time, Miniwachone. Um, we really have to think about uh, how water moves. It's not just uh, that it is life for us, but water moves in a very particular way. And when I was at Standing Rock and when I reflect upon time that I myself spent in Detroit, because that's where my family always had our family reunions, um, just uh, thinking about Flint, Michigan, uh, Standing Rock, the Navajo Nation, uh, places like Detroit, Indianapolis, Chicago, where I grew up, where you look at the car industry, you look at water as a human right, you look at housing in Seattle, and we wonder why our nation is at the point that it's at now. It's because we're thirsty. And when you're thirsty, when your body is thirsty, you will react, react in particular ways. You'll do what you have to to get that water. You'll do what you have to to live. And so I wrote this piece um, after Standing Rock and wrote it uh, as I thought about all the many movements that were watching erupt across the country and have been watching for a long time and what it really means for you and I to move like water and for you and I to choose to be justice, especially in places uh, where justice seems like it's, it's dry. I grew up in the black church, so this might take like 20 minutes. <laughs> Y'all ain't ready. <laughs> Let's go down to the river to pray. Studying about those good old days and who shall wear the golden crown. Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, family, let's go down, let's go down, don't you want to go down? Oh, family, let's go down, down to the river to pray. I can hear my auntie singing in the back of the chapel. 
My Baba leans down to me and says, baby, understand that justice is like water. It starts as rain in the clouds and makes its way down the mountainside into the valley below, that it settles in the place where it is most needed. Understand, baby, you must be like water. You must be like justice. See how this water moves. Water will not be obstructed. It will move around, over, or through a thing if it has to. You, justice, must move around, over, or through a thing if you have to. We get to the water and Baba says to me, understand, baby, that justice is just us being just us. That without us, there is no justice. That without us, there is no resistance. That without us, this system persists in its defiance, dividing us further from the divinity that is our unity with Mother Earth, dividing us further from the divinity that is our unity with each other, dividing us further from the divinity that is our unity, our love. She reminds me that in this place, suddenly cash will rule everything around me. That's when all we see is property. Suddenly we're seen improperly as a man is steadily blocking my attempts to break free. There can't be no free trade agreements when black bodies are sold as stocks and bonds and jail cells sell out as politicians are building their wealth on these black and brown bodies, markedly marketed, targeted, murdered, extrajudiciously with impunity, not just locally, but globally by the same hands who stole us from our homeland to work these lands, the same hands that'll feed us back to these lands, the same hands that'll try to sell us back our homelands overprocessed and overpriced till we become underfed. But yo, guess what? I come from a resilient people, a still living people, a still here people, we are still here people. In the land of the brave, the home of the slave, shit, I keep getting that wrong. The land of the braves and somewhere around us, I feel like someone is missing. The natives, is anyone looking for them? As the rivers run red round us with blood, is anyone looking for them? We don't ask so they never have to tell the truth. You know, I think it has something to do with these politics, politics, blood-sucking politicians where the only thing redder than their fangs are their blood-stained hands. Look at them, elbow deep in the cookie jar. Why don't we just call it capitalism? Who pays the toll for this feudalism? While the 10% prosper, the rest of us rest to the bottom in chains and body bags to be buried much more than six feet deep under more fair trade agreements where the only thing fairly traded is our rage against this machine, a machine that would have you believe you will never have enough, you will never be enough, but yo, see, enough is enough is enough is enough is enough is enough when we say it's enough. Say it's enough. It's enough. There's always been enough when we were willing to share it. My Baba leans down to me once again. By the river, in the valley, where the water pools in the place where it's most needed, tells me to look at my own reflection. Reminds me that justice is what love looks like in public. Reminds me that if you cannot love yourself, you cannot be justice, so you must first learn to love yourself before justice is just us being just us. She reminds me I must learn to love myself like water, that it must move around, over, or through a thing if it has to. My love cannot be obstructed. That's the only way that justice is just us being just us. She reminds me that when I find myself lost, when I cannot figure out where the love has gone, she sings. Let's go down to the river to pray. 
Studying about those good old days and who shall wear the golden crown. Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, family, let's go down. Let's go down. Don't you want to go down? Oh, family, let's go down, down to the river to pray. Justice is just us being just us. Thank you, y'all. How's everybody doing tonight? Nice. I'm a, I'm a little bit teary right now because I was thinking about having Nikita speak before we have a conversation about the 50-year rebellion. And one thing you may not know is that um, Nikita, we're welcoming Nikita back to public life. She was running for mayor and she's also an artist. And she happened to meet her campaign manager doing a program here at the library. So when she asked, um, we did a plaza program with a DJ and art making, and it was very fun. And when she asked, hey, could I do a, po uh, do a poem um, before you start the program, I was thinking about Scott saying he wanted to have spoken word. And it seemed like an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. Um, but I also was thinking that this is a place where we get to meet one another and we get to think about community and what we can do together. And it's really not about our political affiliation, but it's about us making a wonderful city. Tonight's program, The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit, is part of a series that we have been doing all year round that's looking at the changing political climate of our country. So with that in mind, we're thrilled to have Seattle's local scholar and activist Scott Kitoshige here with our special guest, author and scholar Michael Hart. Tonight's conversation is one that we've been planning for a bit, but the context is 50 years ago, urban rebellions erupted in Detroit and cities across America as social movements advanced all over the world. With political debate centered on many of the same unresolved issues, race, war, policing, and civil rights, resistance has emerged as the key word for today's generation of activists. Tonight, Scott Kitoshige, author of The 50-Year Rebellion, and Michael Hart, author of Assembly, will analyze the structural crisis provoked by the 1960s rebellions and draw lessons from the past half century of social justice movement building. Scott is a professor of American and Ethnic Studies at the University of Washington Bothell and previously professor at the University of Michigan. He is the author, co-author, editor of four books, the Shifting Grounds of Race, Black and Japanese Americans in the Making of Multi-Ethnic Los Angeles, The Next American Revolution, Sustainable Activism for the 21st Century with Grace Lee Boggs, Exiled from Motown, A History of Japanese Americans in Detroit, and The 50-Year Rebellion, which will be on sale and you can get a signed copy tonight, thanks to Elliot Bay. Scott is also a board member of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership in Detroit. And hey, I love that. I love any crowd that's participatory. And has been involved with a range of community organizations since the 1960s. Hold your applause, because I'm going to introduce Michael Hart, and then we'll give them a really warm round of applause. 
Um, Michael Hart teaches in the literature program at Duke University. He is co-author with Antonio Negri of the Empire Trilogy, Empire, Multitude, and Commonwealth, as well as Declaration and Assembly. The trilogy in particular, its first volume, Empire, has been hailed as the communist manifesto of the 21st century. I think these two might have an interesting conversation for us. So please welcome Michael and Scott. Well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for coming out tonight. I know there's a lot going on in the world, so um, it's really humbling um, that you're all here. I really want to thank uh, Davida Ingram for that generous introduction uh, and for all her work, not just on this program, but for so many amazing programs that make this library and make this city a much better place. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you to everyone at the library um, that, makes, uh, that makes events like this possible. Thank you to Elliot Bay. And thank you uh, to Nikita Oliver for that amazing opening. Um, I had this event uh, that really was a bucket list event when my previous book with Gracie Boggs came out. Uh, it, was in, it was in New York and um, Grace was a really close friend of Ruby Dee. So Ruby Dee did a poem to open <laughs> uh, my last book uh, launch and I think in many ways, uh, Nikita is carrying on that spirit of artists like Ruby Dee, uh, who have been so active uh, in the public arena. She's helped us to see that the movement is bigger than all of us, but that we can all become bigger by participating in that movement. So thank you, um, Nikita Oliver. And I want to thank Michael Hart for really helping me uh, think through this book and continuing conversation that, that's been going on uh, over a number of years now. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't start by recognizing uh, people that died and were injured in Charlottesville, but really everyone that struggled against uh, the fascists, the Nazis, the white supremacists, and struggling for democracy and human rights and human dignity in this country, which is shouldn't have to be a struggle for basic human dignity, but it still is. Um, and I want to see that activism as part of a long tradition of struggle. And I want to put that into the context of what David talked about, the unresolved contradictions of 1967. I think we're still living in a historical moment uh, framed by 1967. Sadly, as Michael said, we're still living in a moment framed by the unresolved contradictions of 1867. Um, but we're gonna focus more today on, on the past 50 years. And I wanna just give two examples. I'm sure you've all heard them by now. Trump's both sides comment, in many ways is shaped by the response to the 60s, by the idea that the push for racial equality and the establishment of civil rights means a loss of freedom for others in this country. Um, this is really the product of 50 years of racial resentment and, and politicians consciously inflaming that racial resentment. I read a poll today that said 68% of Trump supporters believe, quote, there is a lot of discrimination against whites. And that is really the central problem for many of them and why he could say there are sort of legitimate concerns being raised by both sides and we need to say fine people on both sides. 
And I think the second point is, is his focus, this equivocation defaulted to this focus on restoring law and order, which was, again, the predominant right-wing response to the rebellions of the 60s, the rebellions in the, in the cities, but also, really, the revolt against the imperialist wars in Vietnam and other places around the world, that this shock to the system required uh, a call for law and order. This is what Nixon ran on when he was elected in 68, and this was part of a real shift uh, a paradigm shift from a focus in this country on a war on poverty to a focus on a war on crime and what we have now, this mass incarceration crisis. So this is really, again, a product of 50 years of a politics of fear uh, and resentment in response to the crisis brought about by the rebellions of the 1960s. The focus on law and order in the 60s was uh, revolved around you know, the FBI's COINTEL program, coordinating assassination of not just Black Panther Party members, but other activists, trying to uh, convince Martin Luther King that he should commit suicide and give up leadership, and infiltrating or at least spying on just about every social movement uh, in this country in the 60s. Today, we see uh, attacks on democracy, we see authoritarianism, we see voter suppression, um, and Again, this is part of this pattern of, of a 50-year response. Um, so we live in very dangerous times, and I want to quote my mentor, uh, Detroit's philosopher activist Gracie Boggs, from a address she made after her 98th birthday. She said, quote, with growing unemployment, the crisis in the Mideast, and the decline in this country's global dominance, we have come to the end of the American dream. The situation reminds me of the 1930s when good Germans, so-called good Germans, demoralized by their defeat in World War I, unemployment and inflation followed Hitler into the Holocaust. These days in our country, she continued, a growing number of white people feel that as they are becoming the minority and the black man has been elected president, the country is no longer theirs. They are becoming increasingly desperate and dangerous, end of quote. Now it sounds like the pitch perfect response to Trump's campaign in 2016. But actually, she was responding to events that happened in Detroit and Michigan in 2013, when the governor, Rick Snyder, stripped Detroit's elected uh, government of its authority and named an emergency manager to take autocratic control over the entire city. The key elements that would later mark Trump's election facilitated the state takeover and bankruptcy of Detroit, authoritarian rule by the super wealthy, a so-called white lash against black political power, voter disenfranchisement, the gutting of workers' rights, and the pillaging of public goods and institutions. And the architects of this heavy-handed maneuver have subsequently put forward Detroit's corporate makeover as precedent for financially distressed governments and public entities across the globe. So the sad reality is that the hazards millions of Americans fear may happen in 2017 most likely have already struck Detroit. Detroit used to be the wealthiest city in America, by many assessments, it now has an official 40% poverty rate, a poverty rate that has tripled the national average. During the 1950s, Detroit population peaked near 2 million. By 2015, it was estimated to be down to 677,000. And Detroit uh, became a national symbol of extreme persistent racial segregation and inequality. Um, so. These, to me, are not symptoms of one city you know, that, that's ex exceptionally bad. These are symptoms of a structural crisis that is systemic and national uh, in scope. 
And to borrow from critical race theorists Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Torres, we need to see Detroit as America's canary in the coal mine, to use their term. Too often it's been cast off as a space of exception, its problems are so insurmountable that the nation refused to deal with them. However, Guineer and Torres call on us to recognize how embattled communities of color, quote, signal problems with the way we have structured power and privilege and provide the early warning signs of poison in the social atmosphere. Um, so we'll get more into this, but I just want to lay out what are the things we can learn from, from, from Detroit. One is that Detroit helped us to see the distinction between calling an event a riot versus a rebellion. Right? So for those who saw it as a riot, it was, uh, it was a description of conditions that needed a restoration of law and order, and we've already seen where that's gone. But violence was not new in Detroit or in America. It was embedded within a white supremacist social order. Detroit itself one time had over 20,000 Klan members, right? People aren't aware of this. This is the 1920s when patterns of racial segregation and inequality are really being established in the industrial city. Detroit had a race riot in 1943, and race riot then meant white mobs and police assaulting African Americans. And uh, this persistent pattern of job discrimination, inequality within the schools, within the housing, was in many ways enforced by unequal policing and uh, frequent outbursts of police brutality. So that is why uh, so many in Detroit gravitated towards seeing the uprising as a rebellion rather than a riot. The violence was always in, already inherent within the white supremacist order. But what we want to get more in today is what Grace Lee Boggs and others talked about, the need to move from rebellion as a stage in rejecting a system and an inequality towards social transformation and revolution. Seeing revolution not as one event that will simply change everything overnight, but seeing it as a protracted struggle that particularly has to arise from the grassroots. So I'm going to stop there and uh, save some of these specific discussions for a conversation that we'll have um, over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. So what Scott and I have planned is that we'd each uh, talk for five to seven minutes, I think, right at the beginning, and then, and then we have three different points that we're going to talk back and forth about before I think the idea is more or less to open it up between eight and 8.15 to have plenty of time for a discussion, just so you know where we're, where we're going with that. I wanted to emphasize um, and really to take off from where one of the points that Scott uh, left off with, and that's uh, the way I would put it is to say that protest is not enough. I mean, clearly today, protest is necessary, not only in the US, it's, it's sometimes uh, easy to lose track of the fact that it's uh, the rise of right-wing movements and governments isn't strictly a U.S. problem, but in some ways common with a variety of countries around the globe, including the Philippines, Turkey, Russia, Poland, movements in, in Western Europe too. So uh, when keeping that in mind, I, I would say it's absolutely necessary to protest it's absolutely necessary to um, protest in the streets, at police killings, at the courthouses when the, when the police are not convicted, at the construction of uh, tar sands pipelines, at the, at the construction of, and, and functioning of oil refineries, at the airports, um, 
responding to Muslim bans, um, in, in all kinds of ways, um, and of course against fascist racist demonstrations, like in Charlottesville. Um, in fact, you could conduct, construct your list with innumerable other necessary today points of protest. Yeah, I guess so, so the first, first point of this, I suppose, is that protest is necessary. I mean, I also, the events of Charlottesville force us to add also that a kind of defensive action is also necessary today. Unfortunately, a kind of uh, protecting people against fascist violence, especially when police are unable or unwilling to do so. When I think about other countries that I've been involved with, with similar kinds of things, uh, in recent years there's been the similar kind of need to protest, protect migrants. I'm thinking now of Germany, Sweden, Italy, countries that I know relatively well, protecting migrants against fascist attacks. Like, so there's a kind of defensive action, an anti-fascist defensive action, anti-racist defensive action that has to happen. But all that said, it seems to me that it's important always to keep in mind that protest isn't enough. Um, when we only think about protest and only about these kind of defensive actions, it seems like we can be stumbling from one disaster to the next. In fact, since the election in November, and especially since the inauguration in January, it can seem people are, are tied to their Twitter feeds or tied to the news cycle so much that there's this kind of um, incessant reacting. And so that, that, that reacting and the defensive mechanisms can, can be all engrossing. Instead, and this is something that Saad already said, so I'm really just amplifying or repeating one point he made. Instead, in addition to protest, in addition to the defense, what's necessary is the construction of real social alternatives. And that's what I think we really have to focus on. I'm sure that later I have some examples and Scott has some too about um, uh, what's going on today where people are constructing real alternatives and not just being, not only uh, being caught up in the kind of response and, and protest. But let me, let me just add here, before we get to that later, I wanted to add and, and in some ways try to link this to the story Scott was telling about Detroit a general or theoretical hypothesis. Um, I hope you can be indulgent of me, that's the way I think. So here's the hypothesis, and then I, I think I'll be able to make it, um, articulate it better enough. The hypothesis is that resistance is prior to power. What I mean by this is we normally think of it in the opposite way. We normally think is that power acts they innovate new ways to oppress people, et cetera, and what resistance does is it responds to it, like that power comes first and resistance comes second. What I'd propose, or this seems to be a useful hypothesis, is to think about it the opposite way, that resistance is what comes first and power comes second. So let me just start with the, the, the story that Scott tells about Detroit in the book in particular. I've read the book, by the way. I highly recommend it. Um, the, the, the story he tells in the book is about these 50 years in Detroit and how it's really a right-wing and capitalist response to rebellion that's driven those 50 years. Like that really 67 comes first and then 
fiscal crisis, white flight to the suburbs, uh, financial control of the city is all in some ways a response to that. Um, and that seems, so that's maybe one way of thinking about it. But when we think about the rebellion, it's important not only to think about July 1967, fighting the police, the burning and looting, but rather to think about the history of Detroit in the decades around that and the kinds of, uh, uh, of resistance that was really not so much resisting power, but creating alternatives already. It's really that, I would say, that the power in Detroit was responding to. So for me, important examples of this um, come from the auto industry and maybe thinking Detroit in those years it's impossible to separate the history of the city from the history of the auto industry. I'm thinking in particular of, of, of two specific organizations, the, the, who, which um, organizations which Scott does talk about, of course, and explain in the book. The Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement at the Dodge plant, the Dodge auto manufacturing plant, and related to it, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. What, both of these organizations, what I think was distinctive about them is that they were, of course, opposing the company. You know, they were workers who were struggling against Dodge or, or against the auto manufacturers, really against capital as a whole, but they were also struggling against the United Auto Workers and in specific, the white centralized leadership of the UAW. So what the, what the, what these organizations were constructing at the time was a more democratic and specifically a more autonomous organization. Like more autonomous, not only from capital or from the, from the plant, but also from the union and specifically from the white controlled union. And they were also involved not only in the plant, like not only the organizations of workers in the factory, but also the organization of the community outside of the plant. Like ultimately, I think what these groups were aimed at and what they were constructing was an alternative mode of life, and specifically with these organizations, a black autonomous mode of life in Detroit. So it seems to me, what, to come back to my hypothesis then, that resistance is prior to power, that the development of the power structure in Detroit was responding not only or really not even so much to the conflict with the police in the street. You know, if you think about 1967 as that kind of, um, uh, as the burning and looting, but rather to the kinds of resistance that was really constructing an alternative mode of life. Like that's what seems to me interesting and in what, um, what the League and the Dodge uh, Revolutionary Union Movement was doing. So that's so that my hypothesis then that resistance is prior to power. It's not just that it comes first. It's really that that is the moment of innovation, like that power is not able to construct. What is really these moments of resistance, or um, struggle for liberation, like that's where the real moment of innovation is, and that's what it means to say that resistance is prior to power. That that's the moment of innovation, and power just, just. Um, reacts to it and tries to contain it, steps back from it. So, okay, so what does this do for us? Like, what would this hypothesis or this perspective? Yeah, so looking at the history of 
of uh, the Detroit Rebellion that way, also now trying to read movements in the present that way. What does it do for us? One is to recognize that, and maybe this is the most simple one, or maybe too simple even to say, is that we're not just victims. Like, it's not just that power acts and we are, we are victims of it, but rather that, um, and, or that we're just defending, or that we're just reactive in all those ways, but rather that social struggles for liberation are powerful authors of social innovation themselves. Like that's what I mean by this perspective of resistance is prior to power. And it forces us to look beyond the protest to the instances of social innovation. Okay, so if that's, that's I'm, I'm really gonna stop with this first part there, but I hope that you could see how um, it relates to my opening claim that we have to, and here again, I think I'm saying something that all of you, that seems to me no news for anyone, you know, that protest is not enough. That in addition to protest, we need also, and maybe more importantly, to construct uh, um, real lasting alternatives. That this notion of resistance being prior to power is a way of seeing that, or a way of highlighting that. That it's not just a matter of resisting, of reacting, of, of defending ourselves against um, oppression, but also and moreover about treating the struggles as the moment of innovation that can create, create social alternatives. And that's what we need to focus on today, it seems to me. Okay, I'll pass to the next part, Scott. Thanks. So um, in this back and forth part, we decided we wanted to start by uh, looking at the significance of 1967, right? So I'll say a couple of things about that and that relate not just to Detroit, but really to Seattle and really everywhere in the US. The one obvious point is that the contradictions of 1967 have not been resolved. Right? We still have white supremacists. Uh, we still have a system of institutional racism and white supremacy beyond people out there carrying torches. Uh, we still have severe economic inequality. People were protesting wars in the 1960s. We're still quagmired in at least two wars and possibly, you know, worried about a nuclear war at this moment. And undoubtedly, it was police brutality that touched off the rebellion in Detroit and in Newark and other places in the 60s. Most of the people that died in Detroit were killed by the police, right? So we can look at it as an uprising, but really it was also a police riot. Um, this new movie, Detroit, which some people like and others don't like at all, does get at a very important incident that happened where it was basically the police in the middle of the Detroit Rebellion assaulting, torturing, and really massacring uh, innocent African-American civilians um, and two white women in a, in a motel. So that's an important thing to point out is in some ways that hasn't changed. Seattle, we're still dealing with police killings um, and trying to get them under control. I think the other side of that though is that 1967, even though some of these forms of oppression still exist, really is a turning point in history. Because as, as Michael was saying, so much of the politics of the last 50 years has been a reaction to the shock to the system that the rebellions of the 60s represented. The rebellions in terms of the street uprisings, but also, again, the political revolt against the existing order and against a system that, that preached equality 
but was really very slowly and gradually moving uh, in that direction and uh, in many ways was starting to stall. Um, and so, you know, what you see in Detroit um, was uh, black political empowerment to the point where you had 40 years of African-American mayors, right? Uh, and the response to that was white, more white flight, uh, more uh, shifting of resources and jobs uh, and funding uh, to the suburbs. And you had this new base, you had this new base of uh, white voters moving from the Democratic to the Republican Party, the so-called Reagan Democrats, and now some of them um, you know, supported Trump. So it was a turning point in terms of this right-wing counter-revolution. But it was also a turning point in terms of oppressed peoples, communities of color, and other formerly marginalized and silenced voices saying that, you know, we are going to put our issues at the center of the national stage, right? And in many ways, that is what is the source of polarization in this country today. It'd be, you know, easy to say, why can't we all just get along? Well, the point is, the reason we don't get along is because we haven't resolved these issues that, again, grew out of the rebellions of the 1960s. Um, so, Michael. <laughs> so I had just two ideas about this historical part uh, to go with this, and I, they, they both do, in some ways, have to do with the, the Catherine Bigelow film, too, which I imagine some of you have seen, and okay, most of you haven't seen. It, it could, um, you don't have to have seen it, and maybe you don't have to see it. I, I, I have relatively low expectations of what Hollywood would do with such an event, so I wasn't disappointed by it. But I wanted to, I thought two criticisms of it might help, you know, just as framing devices. And one, one about police brutality and the other about spontaneity. The police brutality point maybe is a simple one and it's partly about reading the events. The, um, it seems to me that while one must focus on police brutality and on, and on uh, police killings, as we often do still, and of course, uh, as a representation of Detroit also does, um, it can be misleading because that focus on police brutality or even the concept itself presents it as an exception. I think that, the, that in fact, so that it seems as if, you know, this is the kind of impression one can get from, from a film such as that, but also I think uh, our recounting of many of the, of the events of the last, of the last decade, um, it can seem as if, therefore, if we only had uh, a police force that did not include those few racists, everything would be better. If it seems like the exception, that's what I think the, the concept of police brutality too often does. And instead, one has to uh, recognize not the exception, but the normal, daily, um, vicious life of relationships to the police, to the courts, to the prison system. Like the one has to focus on the norm, not on the exception. So that's what, I, the, only, the only difficulty I'm having then, or the only criticism I'm, I'm using here of, of this notion of police brutality is that it focuses on the exception. Whereas I think the real problem is the norm. What really is happening every day, that that's the problem, rather than the, than the exception. The second, Maybe I could put this again as it seemed convenient to put as a criticism of the film too. 
is about this uh, appearance of spontaneity. Like that it appears, and it could easily appear, that the, um, that the rebellion was a spontaneous response to uh, the police killings, the police arrests first at, a, at an unauthorized um, uh, um, bar, you know, of liquor sales, and, and, and then the, the, the police violence. I think, I, my motto with, with this would be, don't trust anyone who calls a movement or a revolt spontaneous. I think that it only looks spontaneous from those who are ignorant of the causes. So, I mean, the classic example is this, and I think you can probably think of many other classic examples. A classic example comes to mind for me is uh, 1960 in Greensboro, four young black men um, sit at a white lunch counter and refuse to leave. So journalists and many sympathetic observers described it as a spontaneous protest. And from the outside, it certainly appeared to come from nowhere. But then, of course, if you know what was going on behind those four, four young men, uh, the organization for years in church groups, in student groups, the local chapters of the NAACP, there had been, for years before that, sit-ins uh, elsewhere in the southeast in the US, so that it only appeared spontaneous if you didn't see all of this. I think spontaneity just uh, is that, um, is the appearance from, from the outside, whereas from the inside, one can recognize the long construction that goes into this. I mean, one could name a number of other, uh, numerous other events. I mean, another one that I've been interested in, the 2011 riots in, in London after the Mark Duggan killing. I mean, the, I, I guess this is what I think that's got the importance that Scott attaches to the distinction between a riot and a rebellion. Whereas in a, a riot could appear spontaneous, whereas a rebellion has behind it a history of organized struggles. At least that's the way, the way I'm interpreting it. Hmm. Um, so the um, spontaneity, it seems to me, like in the same way that I think police brutality reduces the normal and structural functioning, uh, especially racist functionings of the police, the courts, and the prison system. Spontaneity is also a way of discrediting, um, discrediting the revolt and uh, focusing on it merely as a reaction and not as a constitution of alternatives. Yeah, so I want to take off from your point about the repression and the police brutality not being an exception, but really being the norm. Not that they have to do it, just like the Klan. As, as Jimmy Boggs used to say, the Klan would, you know, lynch people, uh, not continuously, but they would do it enough to where the rest of the time that that threat and that fear would be imposed upon right, the black community under Jim Crow. And I get, I guess, I get that that's what you're saying about, you know, the state violence, right? that it happens as a way to enforce order, right? And it seems to me that um, one of the things that comes out of the rebellions of the 60s is this shift towards authoritarianism, mass incarceration as a way to restore order. But it's interesting to me that, you know, obviously liberals and Trump supporters don't agree on almost anything right now. But there is among some liberals this kind of common sentiment to try to go back to a golden age of American politics 
of American liberalism when you had the New Deal and you had a, a social safety net. Um, and again, that's not all, but it is certainly some. You see it in the writings of someone like a Paul Krugman. Um, and obviously, when Trump supporters are saying, make America great again, you know, they are talking about a return to a sense of prosperity and, and peace. And they are covering over uh, all the male privilege, the white privilege, the heteronormative cisgender privilege that was inherent in that, right, which is, uh, uh. but in some ways, so are the liberals thinking that we can just go back to an era of New Deal liberalism, right? I mean, in fact, the point of the 60s rebellions was New Deal liberalism was not serving everybody equally. In fact, Ira Katz-Nelson just read an uh, editorial in the New York Times based on his book, When Affirmative Action Was White. Sorry. So many of these 20th so many of these 20th century programs of the New Deal and of, of liberalism and uh, coming out of the Democrats disproportionately uplifted whites in the middle class rather than immigrants, people of color, particularly African Americans uh, and women. And, and I think that's one thing that, why the 60s is a point of no, is a point of no return because there, it, you really have to be innocent and naive to think that you know, there was some, some happy medium um, and so that's where I see the polarization happening, where you have this shift towards authoritarianism and, 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 and right-wing uh, authoritarianism in terms of, of state violence, but also this shift towards you know, gutting unions and pensions and benefits and, and, and using globalization and outsourcing as weapons against, against workers. That devastates Detroit, even while other cities like um, Seattle may benefit from the new global economy. And yet, even when cities are more wealthy, you have some of the same problems. So in Detroit, you have 140,000 foreclosures because people's property values are, are, are devastated by predatory lending and uh, Wall Street shenanigans and other things. But in Seattle, because property values have skyrocketed, you also see, you also see people losing their homes and, and, and communities under attack. In Detroit, the public school system has basically been eviscerated heavily by the funding and, and, and uh, uh, involvement of Betsy DeVos, who's now, you know, attempting to replicate these types of, of privatization uh, policies for the whole country. Um, and, and yet in Seattle, you don't get that same level of white flight from the public school system, but because of that, you have much more race and class inequality within the, the Seattle school district. Um, so, you know, Again, I, I guess the point I'm getting at is the polarization happens really everywhere, even though it looks like it's, it's more extreme in a place like Detroit. Um, but I, I was getting at your point that the system itself, right, there's no such thing as a normal system. In fact, what, what we call the exceptions are really defining uh, the new dynamics of the system. So I guess that, yeah, I guess that brings us more to the present. So I want to give... Um, Some of, some of what's happened in Detroit, and I think, again, it's important to point out that Detroit was really at uh, the center of the fight for workers' rights, labor unions, uh, and civil rights in this country, right? Detroit was even called a model city for uh, social progress prior to 1967. And what we've seen is it's, it's really not an accident that Detroit has been targeted for this right-wing authoritarian um, autocratic takeover 
by a so-called emergency manager in the name of restoring you know, uh, uh, fiscal health. But really what it is, it's not just an, a rearrangement of fiscal policies, it's a rearrangement of social policies on a mass scale. Um, and so you see pensions and benefits cuts for workers and retirees. You see uh, massive privatization of city departments, sell-off of public assets. There's even this plan uh, that these uh, libertarians have to buy up uh, Belle Isle, which is like Detroit Central Park, but it's an island. They actually want to turn it into a private city-state for millionaires. This is an actual proposal. And it's not just fringe people. It's like, you know, the former head of the Chamber of Commerce and the treasurer of the Republican Party, people like that. Um, in terms of focusing on uh, gentrification and, and making the city more business-friendly, you have massive subsidies for uh, billionaire developers like Mike Illich, who, the late Mike Illich, but his family owns the Detroit Red Wings, they got a 250, $285 million subsidy for a hockey arena while the city was in bankruptcy. Meanwhile, $250 million plus dollars that was supposed to go from the federal bailout to help homeowners facing foreclosure or you know, their, um, having trouble with their mortgage payments was diverted instead by the emergency manager and the governor to demolitions. And if people didn't leave because their house was demolished, the city started shutting off water to uh, over 80,000 people in the midst of this bankruptcy. And so it was basically, and, and while they were over a 15-year period closing roughly 200 public schools. And maybe the only good thing about the water shutoffs is that at least people having their water shut off weren't getting poisoned by drinking water <laughs> as the people in Flint, 100,000 people in Flint were when the emergency manager took over their city. Um, so again, these are horror stories, but they are also an attempt um, to, to sort of take away the floor that once existed, right? To take away not just the safety net, but a basic sense of, of livability for people so that, again, uh, a city could exist no longer on the basis of civil rights, civil rights and union rights but be based on this model where the billionaire developers rule over everything. They have their private security, you know, uh, defining what life is like, and people who can't afford to live there are simply, you know, seeing their homes demolished, their schools closed, um, and their neighborhoods basically stripped of, of services. Um, so that's, to me, what's really dangerous about this moment um, Michael, I'm going to bring you back in here. <laughs> um, because the other point I think we want to make, and I definitely want to make, is that all these negative things that are happening, and again, you see what's happening in politics at the national level, these horror stories, are a sign of a system that is producing tremendous amounts of oppression and inequality, but, but a sign of a system that's also in crisis. And I think that's really important to recognize today, that the system is in crisis because of the demands that movements have put on it and the challenges and the shock to the system that came, not just from, again, from the urban uprisings in places like Detroit, but from the 50 years of activism and organizing that the movements have done to create, a, to create an alternative. I wanted to, in, in, in many ways, Scott has just been emphasizing, and I, and I think this is also a, a central thread in the book, is a kind of continuity between 
19, the last 50 years, between 1967 and today. I wanted to bring up one, one aspect with regard to the present that seems to me different and provides and presents us with a new challenge. And this is um, by the so-called leaderless nature of horizontal movements from the recent years, and maybe even the recent, recent decades. Um, leaderless horizontal movements that, that of course are not uh, only typical now of social movements in the US, but, but in a variety of other places across the globe, which seems to me a different difference from 50 years ago. In fact, um, many of the social movements let's say at least since 2011, if we want to put it on that way. Um, uh, many of the criticism of them, Black Lives Matter included, they've been criticized for uh, their failure to model themselves uh, on the leadership structures of, that the previous generation had. I mean, this is a, I mean, Black Lives Matter is many things and so it's hard to speak about in, in general, but often there is a criticism that it um, that it does not um, conform to, let's put it that way, yeah, um, the leadership structures uh, and the charismatic leaders themselves of, of 50 years ago. I think it's true that in, um, this is one way in which there's a, a kind of continuity among Black Lives Matter, Occupy, also stretching back to the globalization protest movements of, you know, starting in 1999, say, um, that in them there are no charismatic leaders, uh, there are no leadership councils, there are relatively anonymous facilitators, I would say, who often choreograph struggles rather than uh, leaders in the previous sense. So, and, and, and in them, I think completely rightly, in my view, it's driven, been driven in that direction in, over the last 50 years through a critique of the anti-democratic nature of traditional leadership structures. In fact, what, what, is, what is one of the many interesting things about Black Lives Matter, uh, the various Black Lives Matter movements, is the overlap between the rejection of traditional leadership structures with the rejection of gender and sexuality hierarchies, that the two in many ways function together. So on the one hand, I would say that social movements in, in recent decades have been right to refuse the traditional forms of leadership in the name of democracy and equality. But on the other hand, we do need lasting forms of organization that are capable of bringing about real transformation. Too often it seems to me as if these were our only choices, that either we could choose beautiful democratic movements, but which were, however, ineffective and ephemeral, like short-lasting, or our only other choice are traditional centralized leadership structures, uh, the organizations of which we didn't like, but we had to, in some way, I don't know, hold our nose and, and withstand them in order to be effective. Like, I think that that's, it's not true that those are our only choices, but it's a conundrum. This is, I partly wanted to bring it up 
in case some of you are interested in discussing it. It seems to me a organizational question that's of great importance today. I have my own ideas about, um, let's say, addressing this conundrum. Like, what are our choices if not only horizontal, short-lasting and effective movements or traditional vertical leadership structures that are undemocratic and and I think actually not effective either, but that's another matter. Um, so, but I thought instead of giving you my own ideas about it, I'd just give two examples um, that could at least be evocative. The first is the way that the Movement for Black Lives combines horizontal organization with a platform of policy demands, and in some ways ensures the uh, lasting, and I hope, one hopes effective nature of it with democratic organizing. Like that this might be, or one might argue on the basis of the attempt, you know, the, that, that kind of experiment of, um, of the platform of the Movement for Black Lives of going beyond what I was presenting as a kind of conundrum of the either or. Another example which, which um, might be less present for many of you are uh, electoral parties outside of the US. The one that comes to mind most for me is Podemos in Spain. Um, electoral parties that are attempting to both draw on and foster democratic social movements. In other words, electoral parties, I mean, someone might, some might argue, I, I'm not sure if I would argue this myself, but some might argue that the Bernie Sanders campaign was, was or elements of the Sanders campaign was trying to do this too. I guess all I, I'm, I'm interested in now is just posing as a principle that one might think of a, uh, an electoral party that could both draw on uh, the energies of social movements, but also, and maybe more importantly, foster and give place to the increase of social movements. That that might be another way of understanding how to get uh, get by this. So I guess what I'm um, I both want to present this as a important challenge for movements today that's different, I would say, than 50 years ago, and also maybe just as a baseline for starting the discussion to say that the refusal of traditional leadership structure doesn't mean uh, being ineffective and short-lasting, but rather forces us to recognize as a challenge models of organization that are able to enact lasting transformations and continuous ones that don't fall back into the older leadership structures that seem to me undemocratic and, um, and unequal, something like that. Yeah, I want to take off from that. I, mean, I think obviously it, it wasn't clear already, we know we know now, without a doubt, that elections matter. They, they do make a difference. Um, and yet we also learned, I think, many of us, you know, uh, from having Obama in office for eight years, that elections don't solve every problem in the world in and of themselves or, or, or by themselves either, right? So elections can be very extremely important, especially right now, as a defense, right? as a defensive uh, uh, act against, again, the types of atrocities we're now seeing committed and that are, will continue to be committed for years and years and years with all that's being done you know, to stop, uh, to prevent uh, us from taking more effective action against climate change and, and things that will have long-lasting effects. Um, 
So I think this is where these new movements are so important because, yeah, some people could say, well, why don't you have that one leader, that charismatic leader, or why don't you run someone for office, you know, that can make a difference. But the fact of the matter is we know that, that having someone in office will only be effective if there is grassroots movement to make that person accountable and effective. In fact, oftentimes we've seen it in many cases, putting someone putting a new face in power either doesn't change anything or in some ways corrupts that person who ends up betraying the movement that they came out of, right? And, and, and that's what I think is so important about these new movements. Even if they haven't taken power so far in the traditional way, they are, they are organizing and transforming relationships and consciousness and activity at the grassroots uh, in ways that are absolutely essential if you want long-term structural transformative change. And that's why I want to just and this part of our uh, conversation by coming back to Detroit, because again, it would be very difficult to find a place where people have been uh, faced with you know, higher levels of unemployment, where again, their right to vote has even been basically neutered by these new emergency manager laws. And even though the emergency manager himself has left, he by law put in place structures and policies and priorities that the city now has to basically uphold for the next 13 years minimum before they can be free of this uh, state oversight that they've been put under. Um, so, you know, you would think in that, in that context, people could feel demoralized and defeated, and some people do. Some people have simply moved away, though I want to give a shout out to the Detroiters that, uh, are here today. I know there are at least two or three of them that, that are here. Um, so, you know, uh, you can take people out of Detroit, but you can never de take, take Detroit out of them. Um, um, but the, the, the point I want to make is that because people have been deprived of uh, those types of, uh, of representative democracy, and because people have been deprived economically of those types of jobs that, you know, uh, like the $15 an hour jobs that people have demanded from corporations here in Seattle, because they've lost so much, because they can't rely on wealth, you know, being created by skyrocketing property values, that they've had to develop innovative, resilient ways to survive. They've had to put much more focus on uh, taking care of each other at the neighborhood level. They've had to put much more focus on strengthening and rebuilding relations between children and parents and grandchildren. They've had to deal with the prison crisis and the mass incarceration crisis on a major scale. They've come up with ways to grow their own food, not just to uh, feed themselves, but to deal with the blight caused by uh, vacant lots and abandonment. They have come up with ways to uh, promote restorative justice uh, and uh, conflict resolution that does not require police intervention or incarceration. Um, they have been focused on building economic cooperatives that are uh, prioritizing human needs rather than profit, right? So there's actually in this uh, void of uh, jobs and in traditional jobs and investment and politics, there's been this challenge and this opportunity for people to create a much more visionary alternative, right? And it's, and it's ultimately, 
for it to transform all of society, right, it does need to affect the policies of people in government and, 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 and the uh, primary engines of our economy. But that will happen, in my assessment, by people replicating the models that are happening on a small scale in Detroit with freedom schools, uh, again, with economic co-ops, with urban farms. It will happen by people replicating those rather than somehow those magically being voted into office, you know, and, and imposed from above. Um, and, I, and I think, again, that's the moment we're in. Obviously, we wouldn't want to choose to be in a moment where someone this reprehensible would be in the White House. Um, but because, you know, people who believe in democracy and human rights and social justice are not in power, we have this challenge and this opportunity to strengthen uh, our relationships uh, and, and enhance our visions at a grassroots level. So, um, I mean, this is a, a really, it seems to me really interesting and maybe, I guess, inspiring aspect of, 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 of Scott's perspective on this and, and, and also the book, which is that, you know, Detroit is not just the site of, um, of impre incredible oppression and, and a kind of experimentation of new forms of, of ways to screw people over. I mean, with, uh, with the city, the whole the list that Scott put up there. It's also today the site of really an extraordinary laboratory for alternative futures. Like that, that's what seems so inspiring about Detroit. It's not only that people have survived this incredible 50-year onslaught, it's rather that they have created experiments of a different, of a different future. And that's what, um, anyway, that's what seems to be one thing one should get out of this 50 years. It's not just um, recognizing that we're suffering under the same yoke that's been, that's been developed all that time, but also that, that they're the kind of um, construction of construction of real alternatives. And sort of as I said at the beginning, I think it's much more interest, it's much more, it's much easier, yeah. It's much easier to recognize protest and resistance than it is to recognize people experimenting with alternatives. And so that's what, I just wanted to add one thing to this with a couple other examples, and there are Detroit examples of this, I'm sure, too. Um, an, an optic is something like that, a concept for helping recognize this experiments, you know, contemporary, what seem to me today important experiments with alternative futures. For me, it, 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 it goes under the, the concept of the common. Like, what I mean by this, the common is something, a way of sharing social wealth as opposed to private property or even public property, if by public property you think of as the state controlling it. The common instead is something that we share and that we manage democratically. Like that sounds, I mean, I think there are two things. First of all, it can sound very abstract to you, and B, it could sound utopian. You know, like the struggle against private property, that sounds both antiquated and, and impossible. Let me just give you two examples that I read under this under this lens, let's say, of the common. Which maybe in these examples it seems obvious to me. The first is about um, Standing Rock and the um, struggles against the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, I mean, there are a number of super important things about Standing Rock. I mean, uh, the, the extraordinary gathering of North American tribes, um, the initiative taken by Native Americans in an environmental struggle, in some ways that environmentalists following uh, 
the lead of, of Native American groups. But what, it's the insertion of the common in the struggle that I wanted just to highlight here. Like, because the uh, Standing Rock was really not about property and about ownership. Or, or there's one argument you could make which would put it about land ownership, you know, which could go back to treaty to say that this is our property, that's the tribe's property, therefore you can't construct a pipeline because it's our property and we should control it. But instead, I think that's not the argument. I think that's, that property argument is really replaced by an argument about the common. Because the argument about the earth in Standing Rock is about constructing a different relationship with the earth. It's not about a relationship of ownership, but one about share, about sharing, about care, and about uh, collective democratic management of our relationships to the earth. So that I think what the, 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 the protest against the pipeline, think about the water protectors, or a, a number of other figures having, having to do with Standing Rock, that the, uh, that the struggle is really not just one against the extractive oil industries, but also about, and maybe even more importantly about, constructing a different relationship with social wealth, with, with, with the earth and with water, which is not one of property, was one of the common. I think that maybe, I feel like that's maybe an obvious example. Um, the second one I, I wanted to point to is um, about an initiative uh, that called the Black Land and Liberation Initiative, which um, it's anchored by the Blackout Collective in Oakland and others. Um, I learned about it in the lead up to Juneteenth about taking back the land. Um, and I, I, I listened to the, and maybe many of you have listened to, to these regular web, webinars um, that Movement for Black Lives runs. Um, and so this too seems to me an argument for the common, this, this um, black land and labor, uh, no, sorry, black land and liberation initiative. Labor would be fine too. So here, here's their argument where they say what they're, what they're opposing is the current extractive economy, this is from, from their statement, the mission statement, um, the current extractive economy which depends on the violent enclosure of land, culture, power, wealth, and spirit. So what um, I think that one gets from this really so why do I say it's a notion of the common? Um, it's about opposing the enclosure of land as private property, about the enclosure of also immaterial social relations or other forms of social uh, um, wealth as property. Or put it this way, it, I think that they, they're posing a fundamentally different notion of reparations. Like you could understand reparations, and I, this seems perfectly right, and, I, I'm, I, in, uh, and I'd be perfectly in support of it, in terms of theft. Like if you think of reparations in terms of theft, it's about the right, rightful owner and restoring something to the rightful owner. Like that's not a bad concept, but it's all within a property rubric. It seems to me within the rubric of the common, one can't even think theft. The re and the reparations that um, the, the Black Land and Liberation Initiative poses is not in terms really about theft and the restoring of property. It's rather about restoring a relationship of the common. That is one in which we all have 
access to and democratic decision-making over the land and other forms of social wealth. It seems to me a fundamentally different notion of, 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 of reparations, one that in some ways it seems to me more radical that goes outside of the, the relationship of property. It's saying not just, don't just give me back what you stole from me, but rather that we need a, a fundamentally different relationship to the land and other forms of social wealth in which we don't own it, but we share it and have mechanisms of democratic decision-making around it. Okay, I hope that they, they can at least make sense to you as, uh, you know, we, Scott and I were both saying at the beginning that it's not just a matter of protest and resistance, but also constructing real social alternatives an idea that there are some ways in which even coordinated with each other, social movements today are proposing real and radical social alternatives um, that could lead to a, 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 a different, a, to a form of liberation in a different future. Yeah, and so, you know, to try to summarize the conversation, I think we're saying that resistance is essential, that when people reject an unjust system, uh, they are making a positive statement, right? Uh, that it's important, again, to struggle over that because whether it's through voting or whether it's through media debates, when uh, the right wing tries to frame it simply as a crisis of law and order, that's when you get the authoritarian authoritarianism and the types of, of, of you know, even far right uh, uh, movements that we're now seeing uh, threatening us. Um, but it really comes down to not just those defensive struggles uh, against the right, but, but fostering a creative alternative to, to that unjust order. And the last thing I just wanna add uh, and, and, and open it up on this comment is the people that have been most essential to uh, creating, generating and both, but also being imaginative in terms of being creative, have been people who have been most excluded and most oppressed by the existing hierarchical structures, right? So when you look at these movements arising today, it's particularly because of women of color, queer, trans, disabled, working class folks, um, women of color and gender non-normative, um, gender non-conforming persons that are really uh, at the forefront of what's making these movements so much more innovative and creative. Um, and so we wanna, I guess, invite comments, disagreements, <laughs> questions, uh, and, and, and see what uh, you have to contribute. Yeah, I was interested, um, you were talking about social movements, and you mentioned uh, uh, on the left, it's kind of been herky-jerky. We're very good at the little short term, playing a short game over and over. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, if you, in your research, did you look at the other side of the coin in the sense that, uh, look at where we are today with Trump. He's dismantling government, He's um, putting big business in charge. And you look at that, look at those bullet points. Right on down the line, all of this stuff, you can trace it back, trace it back, trace it back, not to 1967. It's textbook 1960, John Birch Society. They are doing that agenda now. They never went away. <laughs> that was Robert Welch and the Koch brothers' dad. And they just kept grinding away within the Republican Party all this time. As nightmarish as it is, they're better at social movement than we are, <laughs> you know? And ironically, the Birchers back then tried to put Barry Goldwater in the White House, and everybody flipped out because he was gonna get his hands on the bomb. 
look who's got the bomb now. And I mean, I, I think what you're talking about, I really get it, but I think in a way, when you look at the other side of the coin, go back a few more years, and starting with the Birchers, they have been working all this time, social movement, and this is their agenda, they're getting it now. And they were getting it then a few years ago. Yeah, let's take some more questions and comments. Petra, Hopi, Anuyu, Ethiopian Machika. First off, I would like to thank our native people whose land we're standing on, and it's because of their mass murder, genocide, and ongoing enslavement that we're able to sit here today. Um, so this is a two-part question. Um, you highlighted how this nation has been, first off, um, continues to be impacted by ongoing 500 years of ongoing genocide, cultural genocide, and colonization, um, built upon a white supremacy establishment by colonized settlers. So I'm curious, oftentimes when there's these conversations, um, there comes the complex concept of a, an, an ally, specifically, um, there's like a social dissonance moment for um, people like colonized settlers who privileged, um, white privileged, and white people facing white fragility um, or um, white savior effect, but then they kind of want to be allies. What type of steps or like best practices or like what can they do so that they can begin to one heal from their own um, white privilege, white guilt, colonized settler guilt, and white fragility. And then the second part is once that's established, uh, we can take note of the ongoing historical and intergenerational trauma that has been inflicted by ongoing um, colonization. So we talk about the seventh generation prophecy brought by our Lakota brothers and sisters on healing seven generations, and then it begins seven more generations to begin that healing um, holistically to begin decolonizing as a whole individual, society, environment, and future generations. So how do you foresee that people as one, as a nation and communities and the earth can begin that healing or reconciliation if you can not, never really heal. Thank you. Was there, Should we, we take, take more questions? Let's do at least three, yeah. Uh, I haven't read the book. I should. I want to pick it up before I go. Uh, after doing all this study and living there for a long time, and this 50 years of experiment happened, what is your verdict in foreseeing the future of Detroit? What's the future of Detroit? What do you, what's, what's your assessment? Well, to start there, I mean, again, I, the point I'm trying to make is that I think what's happened in Detroit has been really critical to U.S. history, right? And I think the future of this country is in many ways tied to what's happened in Detroit. Not just metaphorically, because Detroit is, you know, setting an example, a negative example, as you, as you pointed out, that, that has now become central to the, the national agenda. Again, I, education is just one example. I mean, the charter school industry in Michigan is now a billion dollar industry, and 80% of the charter schools in Michigan are for profits. 
I mean, they exist basically to make money off of the students. Not even, so they're not even like building cars like GM where they would try to, you know, use, exploit labor so that they could make profits. Now they just see the students themselves as the source of, of money to pocket for the poor private charter school. So, you know, there's a negative model, but again, there's a positive model. Um, and I think to try to address your question, I, obviously I'm critical of, of white privilege and racial inequality. The, it, it's very hard to convince people under this current system, which is set up to promote polarization and hierarchy and equality, uh, for people to somehow, you know, uh, 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 change their position within this current system, because it's really set up to pit people against each other, right? So I think our only hope, and this is why, again, why, though nobody wished for the type of devastation that happened in Detroit, why people like Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs saw it as a real challenge and opportunity is because when the system fails on that level for so many people, we have to come together in new ways. And when we do that, there's no guarantee, but, but the opportunity is to create a whole new set of values and principles rooted in, uh, rooted in respect for indigenous peoples, rooted in respect for all oppressed peoples, rooted in uh, respect for the land, rooted in respect for future generations. So, I mean, that, that is the real, real challenge, right? You're, you're gonna have a real hard time in a city like Seattle where there's so much wealth, right? I mean, the two most richest men in the world now live in this city. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to convince people to give up that system that's creating so much wealth because so many people are fighting to get access to that wealth. And people have a right. I mean, obviously, if you work for people making billions, you have a right to, to your fair share. But, but what's happened in Detroit, again, the collapse of the system has really challenged people to, to think up those types of alternatives. And again, it's mostly coming, as I said, from those who've been most excluded. And I, I totally agree, it has everything to learn from indigenous peoples, whether we're talking about Standing Rock or Palestine or Puerto Rico or anywhere in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely I would want to just start with that and then I can come to the first one, which, um, which was, I think you're absolutely right to point out the difficulties of the concept of ally. But I think we also have to recognize the uh, necessity of always thinking in coalitional terms and recognizing that we have to, and, and I would say not only within the US but also outside of it. Because the problems that we're facing, I mean I just mentioned this at the beginning but and it would probably be a different evening's discussion. The problems that we're facing in the US today aren't that different from things that are happening um, in a variety of countries around the, the world. And we're only stronger the more we recognize, it seems to me, those connections. Like even e either having uh, explicit relationships, but even just learning from, um, learning from each other could be, I mean, movements learning from each other in addition to individuals. Um, so anyway, I mean, I, I know that you're not, um, when you're posing the difficulties of white privilege and the, and the problematical nature of, of allies, you're not saying that we shouldn't. I just wanted to say that we have to approach that always recognizing that um, the kinds of uh, coalitional connections are, are completely necessary. Maybe that's, that's what I would... Um, go with you know with the first one I, I wouldn't say you were saying that the right is better at social movements than the left I, I wouldn't go that far 
Um, I think that actually right-wing social movements in the U.S. and maybe ever, everywhere are reactionary in the sense that they really uh, reflect back elements, distorted elements that the left-wing movements have done previously. Like I was thinking, you know, sometimes it's just in terms of repertoire of struggles, but you know, I was thinking about how this was the early 1980s, what was it called, Operation Rescue, you know, where, where anti-abortion movement took up the notion of a sit-in, and so that they would blockade around it, so they would just take the tactics from the left and kind of redeploy them on the right. I think that that's similar, there are many ways in which there, there's a, that kind of uh, redeployment of the left's, um, but that maybe that's not the important thing. I mean, the important thing that you're, you're definitely bringing up is, and Scott and I touched about this at the beginning, and, 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 and Charlottesville and a number of other things in the, even the last weeks and months make this per particularly clear. I mean, part of the agenda has to be opposing and finding ways of contesting and even protecting against the, um, the violent and, and horrifying nature of right-wing movements in the U.S. today. I mean, that has to, unfortunately, I mean, I think that's one of the least interesting like, you know, I get interested in certain intellectual things. I find fighting fascists one of the least interesting conceptual things, but it's necessary. Unfortunately, that's what we're stuck with. Um, and so we have to figure ways, ways to do that. And that's the part of what, the importance, I think, of what you were saying about the, the, the power of, of these right-wing movements is, is that it poses a constraint on us, you know, that we have to find ways of opposing them. Um, I was curious about something that was mentioned a while back in this conversation about um, power kind of responding to... Oh, sorry. Oh, there we go. It's hard to tell without monitors. Um, about power, something about power kind of responding to revolution and I, I think that, I guess my, my question is, if you look back, if you, if you, you know, read about older movements, you know, I think about like, you know, the Black Panther movement or Ella Baker had, were doing a lot of things around creating new structures, you know, and creating co-ops. And I get the feeling now that there's been kind of a shift in what's deemed possible you know, that we don't, that I don't hear a lot of people talking about that kind of thing, at least you don't see it, or maybe I don't see it, you know, maybe I'm just not there, but do you, and I guess my, my specific question is, do you think that one of the responses explicitly that power has is to um, shift what we view as possible and to bury, you know, kind of the historical record of what's been tried and where we've been? One more question? So I'm curious if you have um, advice about what we can learn here in Seattle from Detroit about the problems that we're facing. So as you mentioned, there's some really important differences in that we have a ton of wealth here, but it feels like we're facing this crisis in terms of the inequity of that wealth and that a lot of ordinary people can't afford to live here anymore, a rise in homelessness and inequity in the school systems. And I'm, I'm wondering if you see parallels and things that, that people should have done sooner in Detroit or what, like, what, 
anything that comes from this study that we could learn to make Seattle a better place now? So I think I'll try to combine these two. Um, so a friend named Bill Ayers wrote a book called Demand the Impossible. I was palling around with Bill last time he was in Seattle. Um, and I think that's, you know, something that Detroit looking at what people are doing in trade just expands the realm of, of what's possible, right? So again, I have friends who have started anywhere from one acre to nine, 10 acre urban farms. So they're not just community gardens. We have some wonderful community gardens in Seattle and other big cities. But Detroit, because, of, because basically capitalists and developers abandoned, and white people, also middle class white people, abandoned so much land, you have the ability to do these farms on a much bigger scale. And it expands the bound of what's possible. So of course, it would seem ludicrous to go into downtown Seattle and demand nine acres of land for a non-commercial, community-owned, you know, predominantly African-American run uh, urban farm that's rooted in, you know, radical principles uh, of, of movement activists. But if you can see a precedent in Detroit, then you can see, you know, at least the seeds of a possibility. Again, it's not gonna happen overnight, but it expands the ground of what we're fighting for. So instead of just fighting for the people who are rich and powerful to give us a little bit more than what they gave us yesterday, that we are seeing that we have a long-term strategy. And we have to recognize, yes, it's gonna require a lot of organizing, a lot of coalition building, a lot of strategic thinking and creativity and, and, and struggle. Um, and, you know, um, on the other hand, there are resources in a wealthy city. You know, we don't have to deal with you know, the type of, of deprivation and lack of just basic, basic needs that so many thousands of people face in a city like Detroit or in other parts of the world that have been so devastated you know, by, by toxic racism and, and by you know, uh, the lack of any type of meaningful labor laws or minimum wage. I mean, we don't have, the, what we have examples of that, but we don't have it on the same scale. So I think we just have to find, you know, what is that balance between where we are positioned and, and what, we, what we can do uh, with the current resources that we have and what we need to do beyond our, our current capacity. I just one, one minute, good. Um, which is, um, I think, uh, I would have a dual two 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 ideas really about about, about your point, which was you know that uh, when one thinks back historically to the Black Panther Party and the breakfast programs and the free clinics, it doesn't seem like the similar things are happening today of the construction of a social alternative. I think on the one hand, um, such things are often invisible, and so partly what it is is to try to see what people are doing. Like it takes a, a greater effort. I often have people say to me like, oh, it's so depressing today because no one's doing anything. And well, I think you're just not looking hard enough. Like that, that uh, I, I don't mean you, I mean me, everybody. It's hard to, it's hard to. Um, so the first thing is about like seeing what people are already doing. And that's where I thought um, Scott's examples from Detroit are really important, but also thinking about it elsewhere, what's happening here in Seattle, what's happening elsewhere. The second, I hope this isn't a conflicting idea, which is that I'm convinced that today is a moment for people to think big. Like it's not a moment where we should just say, look, we need to make incremental gains, the, the right wing is so strong, we're under this horrible government, et cetera, we need to just defend our gains. Or, or I think instead, on the contrary, today 
is the, t is the time when we have to really think, and we can really think, about a radically different world that we want. So that, I, I think that, that it's, um, it's maybe, um, I mean, I, I feel that we're called to that today, um, to, to think of a radically different uh, world and radically different possibilities. I think it's open for that today. So on the one hand, I think uh, there are already things happening, but on the other hand, I would say so much more is possible and necessary, um, than, and, and that's where I think, um, I mean, we, we could come here and after the weekend, it's hard not to feel like um, the world is so fucked, like the country is so fucked, like how, can, how, how did it come to this? I think at the same time, we have to recognize that the, extraordinary, the moment of extraordinary possibilities that we're facing, or even responsibility that we're facing of, of this possibility of creating something different. So anyway, I would put those two together, and it seems like the uh, appropriate way to end. Does that seem okay with you? Yeah, thanks everyone for coming, and thank you. Can we give a warm round of applause to our speakers? Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Scott Kurashige and Michael Hart spoke at the Seattle Public Library Central Library on August 16th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon.